Hello and welcome back to LSHTM Viral. My name is Amy Thomas. Last week, we ran a live-streamed Q&A session with two of our modelers from LSHTM, Professor John Edmonds and Dr. Petra Clairpatz. They were answering audience questions all about modeling and COVID-19. It was streamed on YouTube and Twitter, but we want to bring you the session as a podcast as well. To catch our next live stream, do follow us on Twitter and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you stay in the loop. I hope you enjoy the discussion. My name is Amy Thomas. Infectious disease modelling is something many of us hadn't heard of before the start of this decade. Now it's at the top of the news agenda. Modellers are providing data to governments around the world to help them make decisions on how to respond to this unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic. One of these teams is based at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, the world-leading centre for mathematical modelling of infectious diseases. Today, we are delighted to be joined by two of the team, Professor John Edmonds and Dr. Petra Klepatz, who will be answering your questions. Professor Edmonds is a leader in the field of disease modelling and analysis, specialising in the development and the application of mathematical models to help address public health decisions. John was previously awarded an OBE for his team services to infectious disease control during the 2013 to 16 West Africa Ebola outbreak. Thank you for joining us, John. It's a pleasure to have you here. We are also joined by Dr. Petra Klepatz, who is an assistant professor of infectious disease modeling. Petra is an epidemiology and mathematics mm -hmm. expert working on real-time analysis of COVID-19 interventions, including social distancing measures. Petra also played a key role in the 2018 nationwide experiment that generated critical data sets for potential global outbreaks. Hi Petra, thank you for joining us today. We've already received a range of questions from our podcast listeners and on Twitter, but for those of us who are newer to the topic of infectious disease modelling, Petra, can you talk us through what modelling is and how it is used to help control outbreaks? Mathematical modelling really is capturing the essence of a natural system and its behaviour with mathematical equations. And that really helps us understand the system better. We can analyze it and we can see how different processes influence its outcome. So for infectious diseases, of course, the most important process to capture is the process of transmission. So how does disease spread from person to person? And for directly transmitted diseases, of course, how do people contact each other plays a key role. The models itself will depend on the questions we are trying to answer. So when it comes to outbreak response modeling, at the very beginning of the outbreaks, we are interested in questions like how fast does the disease spread? Is it successfully spreading in people? Is this person-to-person -person transmission? How fast is it? And then as the outbreak changes, our questions change as well. So now we are more interested in controlling the spread. So what interventions can we implement to slow down the spread of the disease and uh, how effective these interventions will be. Thanks, Petra. And, and John, you've worked on outbreaks using modeling in the past. Do you wanna give us some real world examples of when you've used this in previous outbreaks and, and what this helps us achieve? Examples would include in the, the last pandemic, the 2009 pandemic, um, uh, myself and others were looking at models to try and understand, just as Petra said, you know, first of all, you try and understand the, the main epidemiology. So how fast is, is the epidemic spreading? How quickly is it growing? 
And then there's questions about when might it peak and what can we do about it and so on. And in the 2009 pandemic, one of the questions that we worked on was around vaccination. So we knew when vaccine was likely to be arriving in this country. We had pre-ordered pandemic-specific vaccines and we knew that they were coming in the end of October to the beginning of November. And then there was an issue about, okay, well, because we had a first wave in June and July. And uh, so over the summer, it was like, well, is it has it gone or is it coming back? Is it likely to come back? And if it's likely to come back, what's the role of vaccine? So we were trying to then project forward to work out whether we would get another wave. Yes, there was the answer to that. Uh, when might it peak? And who should we vaccinate in order to reduce the impact of that second wave as much as possible? So those are the kind of, an example of the sort of questions that we were addressing. That's great. Thank you, John. And I'm sure we'll get into some more details about the current pandemic in the discussion. We've had a question come in from Dr. Sampson and Dr. Sampson's asking, how does one mathematically calculate the R value of an ongoing epidemic? People might have heard a lot about R values. Petra, can you explain to those, those who don't know what is an R value? And then we can talk about how you calculate that. This R value is essentially a measure of how easily a disease spreads through a population. So what it captures is the average number of other people one person will infect. So if this number is equal to two, if R is equal to two, on average, you infect two other people. As a result, this number also gives you a threshold. If it's larger than one, you will infect more than one person of average. The epidemic will grow. If it's less than one, you infect less than one person on average, and the epidemic will die out. And this is why this number is also has very strong implications for control. The aim is to bring it below one. And in case we do have a vaccine, for so for diseases that the vaccine is available, it kind of gives you a rule of thumb proportion of how many people you need to vaccinate in a population in order to interrupt transmission. So if R is equal to two, you would need to vaccinate 50% of your population. If R is equal to three, you would need to vaccinate two thirds of your population. And this number will vary by disease. So in case of flu, it's often around 1.1, 1.4, 1.5. The pandemic flu in 1918 had R of 1.8. Here, we're in a situation where R is closer to three, but also it depends on the location where it is. For very transmissible diseases like measles, R is closer to 15. So that means that you would need to vaccinate 95% of your population in order to interrupt transmission. How do we calculate it is uh, a little bit more complicated. So early in the stages of the outbreak, the disease spreads through population exponentially. And then you can relate this um, R0 to the exponential rate of spread. But for that, you also need to know the generation time of your disease. And that is the time between I got infected, for example, and uh, to the time that the person who infected me got infected. And you can immediately see the problem. This generation time, it's very hard to measure because we don't necessarily observe the exact point in time when we get infected. Other complications are that we do use, for example, confirmed number of cases to estimate R, or we use confirmed number of deaths to estimate R. 
And there are associated delays in each of these steps. There are associated delays in developing symptoms. There are associated delays in reporting those symptoms. There are associated delays in testing for people who have, for example, COVID, reporting them. And then, of course, there are further delays if if you're working with mortality data because it will take some time for people who are infected to either recover or die. So when we're calculating, when we're trying to estimate what this R is, we're usually looking backwards in time. It tells us like what R was two or three weeks ago. Thanks, Petra. And you mentioned some of the different types of data that you're collecting to to calculate that number. And we've had a question come in from Leo from YouTube asking about data. And Leo asks, a lot of data is being reported quickly, but there's a lot we don't know. What data would you most like to see being routinely reported? So again, this kind of links to some of your work. Would you like to explain that and answer Leo's question? There's quite a lot of data that is important. How many people are tested? What's the proportion of the people who test uh, are testing positive? Of course, the quality of tests also matters here. So are we missing certain infections? We are getting a lot of clinical data, but in ideal world, you would know when people got infected. So this onset dates would be clear or when when they exactly developed symptoms. In an ideal world, people would also remember that. And those are the uncertainties that then influence the uncertainties that are getting propagated through our estimation process. And John can tell you much more about the actual data requirements, what is available and what would be available in an ideal world. Well, I think what Petra was also getting at was that we don't really just concentrate on one single data set. That each of the data sets has its own problems, it has its own advantages, and it has its own disadvantages. So, as Petra said, some of the data are quite delayed. So, just because of the biological processes, and then there's also perhaps a reporting delay attached to some of them. And so, what we actually do is try and combine lots of data sets together. So look at many different data sets simultaneously to give us uh, an overall view about what's going on. I think just taking one can be quite misleading on its own, and uh, but a multitude of different data sets can start to give you a, a better idea, perhaps, of, of the epidemic. Thanks, John. And that links to another question we've had in from Richard um, asking about the uncertainty over the proportions of people infected Um, the numbers of people in in hospital admissions, in intensive care and in ventilation. How do you take all of these factors into consideration when you are modelling? So again, I think this is, uh, these are some of the difficulties. And so uh, some of the data, for instance, might be slightly in conflict to each other. So there may be some data sets that might be increasing and some that might be going down. And it's sort of uh, understanding exactly how that might arise. And it might arise because of differential delays or it might be it might arise because they're actually measuring slightly different things. So some may be measuring what's going on in hospitals and some might be measuring what's going on in the community. So we tend to think of this as one big epidemic, one single epidemic. But I think it, it may be easier to think about it as being a series of linked epidemics. So there's a sort of a wider one going on in the community, but there's also outbreaks associated with hospitals and outbreaks associated with care homes, unfortunately, as well. And and these are slightly different. And so even though the numbers of cases may be going down in the community, 
they may be going up in some care homes or in some hospitals because of hospital transmission or transmission in those closed and closed sort of settings. So you can get these kind of conflicting uh, things going on. And it's quite difficult sometimes to, to tease those things apart. Thanks, John. And I suppose it depends the question on the question you are looking at, which data sets you use. So we've had we've had another question um, coming in. Thank you for everyone that's tuning in to ask these. From Bjorn Flores from Ecuador. Can you tell us what kind of models you use and how they work? So this is quite a technical question. John, would you like to explain to our audience some of the types of models that you use and, and how they work? I would say the main workhorse type model would be an age-structured compartmental model. And we use those sorts of models quite heavily for looking at different um, intervention programs. So these, so that model, what it does is it splits the population into a number of different epidemiological groups. So to set the simplest way to do it would be to say there's three groups. We normally have a few more than this, but, uh, but roughly three groups. Those who are susceptible have not been exposed to the disease before, they have no immunity. Those that are infected and infectious, and they're infectious to other people. And then those who are recovered are dead indeed. And so we look at how these uh, individuals may uh, contact each other in the, in the population. And, and normally we would, instead of just having a simple contact rate and assume that everybody mixes homogeneously, like a molecules of an ideal gas just bumping into each other. We don't really work like that as a society. We tend to have some levels of heterogeneity in, in, in the way that we mix. And so we would then try and include that those some of those basic levels of heterogeneous mixing into the model. So and the classic one that we would often use would be age structure. So you know we know that kids mix differently to adults, you know, kids go to school, adults go to work. And and so we would uh, often have a sort of an age-structured model as a very, as, at the very least that would then take into account the fact that mixing within and between age groups is rather different. So, yeah, as I say, children mix differently to adults and, and the elderly mix differently again. And, and, and then with those sorts of models, then you could start to look at different intervention programs. So you could say, let's try and reduce the contact that the elderly have with younger age groups, for instance, a shielding kind of policy, and look at the impact that that might have on the epidemiology. So that's roughly how we go about modeling it. There are other models. It wouldn't be, it would be wrong to assume that we're just using one model. We're using a whole suite of different models that we do for different purposes. Some are more statistical that you might use for sort of short-term forecasting. And some of these, uh, and, and others are these sort of larger sometimes called mathematical models or mechanistic models that are trying to capture these patterns of contacts in the, in the community and, and, uh, and the importance of those. Great. Thank you, John, uh, for explaining that. It's very interesting. And Byron, I hope that answered your question out there. Uh, we've, we've had a few more come in, so I'm just going to keep on reading them so we get through as many as we can. Annie Collins on YouTube asking, how, how are we accounting for asymptomatic individuals in the modelling? So we've kind of touched on this before. Petra, would you like to just explain how we are accounting for that in our sort of modeling and how that influences the policies that we're making? So John already mentioned that we are using compartmental models. Um, and in the simplest way, you would have this um, susceptibles, infected class and recovered class that has immunity. 
And that would give you three compartments. But of course, the reality is more complicated. You can have individuals who have been exposed but not yet infectious. So you can incorporate that latency period in there. And, and, and as you say, you can have different types of infections. So you can have infected individuals who are clearly showing symptoms, spreading the disease. But you can have also asymptomatic infected individuals. So those are the, uh, slightly different because they're not showing sy symptoms and maybe they're harder to find. So in this case, we would include more compartments in our models. And then you would inform them with data. So what is the proportion of infections that is asymptomatic? Uh, does that vary with age? Are children more likely to be asymptomatic cases than adults? Is this susceptibility to severe symptoms age-dependent or not? And as you get more information about the disease and about the system, you can refine your models to better represent the reality. And this is exactly what we are doing as we are learning more about the role of children in, in transmission of uh, COVID-19. We are trying to incorporate that uh, information into models. So they seem to be less susceptible than adults, but perhaps they are equally infectious when they are infectious. They may be more likely to be asymptomatic. So you can account for that in your models, but then they do get more complicated and you would expand that with um, more compartments. And uh, you always build a model for a particular disease and for a particular question so that it is best suited uh, to answer the questions that you are looking for. Thanks, Petra. And you mentioned compartments there. Does that have an impact on the certainty of the model if you're adding more compartments to it? That's another very good question. Yeah, so the more compartments you have, the more parameters you have to estimate. And this is why different types of data that John is mentioning is key. Really, you need to have the available information in order to be able to parameterize models, which will have in an increasing number of parameters. And this is also the reason why you would, uh, in the beginning of an outbreak, you would start simple with more simple models that you can actually learn about from the data that is available. And then as more information becomes available, you would refine your models. But yeah, you are absolutely right. The more parameters you do have, the more compartments you have, the more complicated it gets to estimate these parameters. And that would increase the uncertainty in the model, which is why link to data is absolutely crucial. Thanks, Petra. And I'm going to move on to another question now from Christopher on YouTube, who is asking, what's our best estimate of the infection fatality rates? And could this differ between countries? John, would you like to shed any light on that? It's actually still quite hard to, to really pin it down. I think it's something just less than about 1% on average, uh, which is actually very high. I know that doesn't sound like it's high, but it is actually very high. Um, and it does, it will change between countries. Uh, it will change between countries because of things like differences in demography. So it's clear that a higher fraction of elderly individuals in the population means that, frankly, there's going to likely to be more deaths in that population. So, and it might change also according to, of course, the level of healthcare that we have in the in the population, and other and also the prevalence of other kind of pre-existing conditions that may be risk factors like like heart disease and uh, high blood pressure and so on. 
Thank you for that, John. So I assume there's lots of modelers working all around the world to understand the situations going on in, in each country. And presumably you're sharing data globally. How, how are you doing that, John? It's been amazing what's happened in terms of just, it's not just the modelling community, but the scientific and medical community across the world. Uh, how quickly we've know, we've got to know about this disease, how how open people have been with their data, countries have been with their data. It's been really an amazing experience of people publishing their, their results as fast as they can. And these online uh, repositories have been very helpful uh, in order to get results out uh, rapidly. And there's a risk, of course, for that because they tend not to be peer-reviewed yet. But uh, But it's been an amazing experience, actually, how you know, just the, the scientific and medical community have sort of come together and just how much we now know about this disease, you know, is only a few months in. It's been really quite amazing, actually. That's really good to hear. Thank you, John. Um, we've had a question from, from Godleve come in um, asking about behaviours. I think this one's for Petra. Have any behaviours during this pandemic surprised you and influenced your basic assumptions on its spread? And also asking, what is the wonderful artwork on your wall? So I'm not sure if they're talking about Petra or John there, but um, so do you want to give a, a stab to the first question, Petra, about behaviours? Uh, yeah, so uh, the behaviour, it really comes down to behaviour when we model infectious diseases. We already touched upon that the contact process is very important. So how are people getting into contact with each other, uh, adults and children? are likely to mix differently. So children are normally very highly mixed in schools. They have a lot of contacts in schools with people um, with other children of their own age. They're likely to mix with their parents. They're likely to mix with maybe grandparents. But um, this mixing is definitely not random. And this type of like, who do we get into contact with is the key type of behavior that influences the spread of infectious diseases. And it is also the cornerstone of non-pharmaceutical interventions that we have available without vaccines or drugs, right? So there is a big stress on so, um, physical distancing. So how do we reduce this number of contacts? So how do we reduce the number of opportunities uh, for the virus to spread from person to person? And what has been really surprising and really amazing is how the public has reacted to um, these ask, a big ask of them to implement physical distancing. So the lockdown hasn't been easy. And actually we had absolutely no idea if such an intervention would be feasible in our society. It has never been tried before. We had no idea if it would work. We saw that it worked in Italy. It's working here. And it's all down to really each of one of us uh, doing our share and contributing uh, to making that work and bringing our contacts down and thereby bringing this famous R number down, thereby bringing the overall number of cases down. And that has been really, I think, for me, the biggest surprise because we absolutely did not know if such a thing would be feasible because it has never been tried before. So thank you, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you Petra for that nice positive message and yeah it's absolutely amazing to see how everybody's come together to to fight this. Um, a lot of people are, are asking about modelling for the UK lockdown. John what work are you doing now on possible approaches for exiting the lockdown? A number of different things really. One is 
just trying to work out what the reproduction number is now under the lockdown. That seems like that must be an easy question. It's not so easy when you really look at it. So we're trying to work out how much headroom we've got. So if you think uh, we want to keep the reproduction number below one, so we want to know, well, are we, uh, is the reproduction number at 0.5, in which case we've got a fair bit of headroom, we can relax things a bit, uh, or is it somewhere more like about 0.9, in which case we really can't relax things very much at all. So that's a um, significant piece of work, trying to uh, determine that. And then once we've got some estimate of that, and obviously we want to know whether that's also what the reproduction number is in different parts of the country, just in case there's regional variation or in different communities, maybe there might be some differences in, in some settings compared with others. So we need that, that assessment first off. And then it's a matter of going through the possible options that we can employ to try and relax things a little bit. So they would fall into the uh, options around school opening, and Petra's done a lot of work on this actually recently. And um, so looking at various different options about how we might open schools, because we one option would be we just open schools again. That might be a bit uh, too risky. And so maybe we open it for certain age groups, maybe primary schools and not secondary schools, or maybe some you know, innovative ways of opening schools. So perhaps we open them for a week on and then a week off and then a week on. So we split the classes in half so that they're not so crowded in class classes and, and then half the class goes back for a week and then they're off for a week and the other half come in. And so we're looking at sort of options like that. So those, those are sorts of some of the things. We're also looking at reintroducing a, 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 a more, a, a test and treat and contact trace uh, type approach, maybe uh, so. These might include using a, an app-based contact tracing, uh, if supplemented with um, more traditional forms of contact tracing. And there's lots of different ways that you can introduce contact tracing. There's lots of different decisions about that and how you use testing in that, and things like whether you test the contacts or just the uh, index case and things like that. So there's a, a huge raft of work that is being done now, looking at these these options and, and how they all fit together. And then it's really up to the politicians then to make the decision. We can model some of these options. They all carry some risk. We've gone into lockdown. It has worked here in the UK as it has done elsewhere at reducing the numbers of contacts and therefore bringing the epidemic down to some extent, you know, turning the epidemic around. But if we're thinking about relaxing some of these measures, they will carry some risk. So it is not an easy decision. And thankfully, it's not our job to make those decisions, that's for the politicians to take on. Thank you so much for explaining that, John. That's some really interesting um, stuff for us to think about coming towards the end of the chat. And um, the artwork question was for you, John. So would you like to uh, tell our audience who did the lovely artwork on your wall? Yeah, that's, 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 uh, that's my daughter's. Um, some of them are a bit old, uh, they've, they've, uh, they've grown up. Uh, there's uh, some, I've worked on a bowler in the past quite a lot and there's um, some nice pictures of a bowler there. Um, some of them don't really, that, that one there, that, it, it doesn't look at all like a bowler, but you know, when you fall. <laughs> That's great, thank you so much, John. Um, and we're coming towards the end of the chat, so I'm just gonna ask you both for sort of a take home message, something that you wanna talk about in, in terms of modeling to our viewers. Petra, what was the sort of take-home message from you on this? So I think the main take-home message is that uh, 
as John said, like we are using modeling as one of the inputs to inform decisions. It's not just up to modeling. And when we do use models, it's not just down to one model. There are a lot of approaches that are, there are a lot of different models and there are a lot of different sources of data that we need to inform those models. And all of that kind of paints a picture of where do we go next? How do we exit from the lockdown? How do we maybe relax some of the interventions? But it's not just down to one model and it's not just down to modelers. We are just like one tiny piece of the puzzle here that informs the decision process. Great, thank you so much, Petra. That's really insightful. And John, do you have any final thoughts to leave our viewers on? I thought Petra's summed it up perfectly. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you both so much for joining us on this chat. I thought we did cover a lot of ground in quite a short space of time. Um, so yeah, thank you for taking the time in this very busy period to do that. And if any of you out there have been inspired uh, by John and Petra for a career in epidemiology, public health, or mathematical modeling, both John and Petra teach MSc modules and short courses on modelling. So you can go to our website, www.lshcm.ac.uk forward slash study to find out more about the courses you can take. And a huge thank you to everyone that's tuned in from across the world and for asking your questions. Sorry if we didn't get to them in this session and we will try our best to get to them um, as soon as we can. If you'd like further information about COVID-19 and all of our work, visit lshcm.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. Make sure you also subscribe to our COVID-19 podcast, LSHDM Viral. A big thank you to our partners, WPP Health Practice, who've been working with us on these broadcasts. They've been really, really great in helping us get them together. And finally, as you've heard, LSHDM is playing a leading role in responding to the COVID-19 crisis. You can help our critical activities by supporting our COVID-19 response fund, which will ensure that this vital research continues. More information will be in the description box below this video. So please head there and find out more. Thank you again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.